I'm Jeff Murphy from Boston University Alumni Relations, and I'm your host for an interview series showcasing the career paths of our most interesting and accomplished alumni. Welcome to the Proud to Be You podcast. My guest today is Catherine Berman, three-time entrepreneur and CEO of the impact investment platform C-Note. Kat graduated from BU's College of Communication in 1997, and since then, her career has spanned management consulting, venture capital, and social entrepreneurship. Kat and I spoke about her time at BU, her passion for social justice, and what she's learned from launching and scaling mission-driven businesses. So, Kat, to get us started, when you were a kid, did you see yourself doing this kind of work? <laughs> Not at all, actually. When I was a child, I think my two biggest aspirations, which were quite different, was to either be a choreographer or a senator. So, <laughs> quite different, but uh, both passions of mine. Wow. And where did you grow up? I grew up in Southern California. Okay. Um, so, tell us a little bit about um, your decision to come to BU uh, in the 90s. BU, different, different kind of institution, but still amazing. How, how did you find yourself in Boston if you grew up in Southern Cal? Just kind of a funny story. So, growing up in California, my parents very much wanted me to stay in California. They had me look into Berkeley and UCLA. Yet I knew that I loved uh, communications. I loved writing. And so one day I was at a friend's house. Her dad was a professor and she had a huge pile of brochures from colleges across the country. And she also knew that she wanted to go into communications. And so she had been looking at the top communication schools across the country. I, I didn't know of any of them. And so I started going through the different brochures. And here I see this one brochure with this beautiful picture of the Charles folks <laughs> rowing, running. And I thought, what's this school? And she started talking to me about Boston University. And so I started looking into the top communication schools and BU was always number one, two or three. And so that really solidified the decision to apply. And then when I went out to visit, it was between BU and a few other schools. I did the whole campus tour with my mother and uh, just fell in love. I mean, it was very much a cultural fit for me. The people were so smart and so kind, um, and it was just a really exciting place to be. There was just a sense of energy and excitement on the campus, and I knew after that trip that's where I wanted to go. So tell us more about your BU experience. Uh, you know, when you, when you got here to Boston, did you love it immediately? And I'm, I'm also really curious to know if there were folks on the faculty that really sort of stood out to you as, as helping shape your BU, BU time. Yes, BU was an incredible and formative experience for me. Uh, I will, I do remember my freshman year living in Warren Towers. It was one of the worst winters <laughs> Boston had experienced for many years. And I'm this new California girl, right? Thinking, yay, East Coast living. And so it certainly took a while to get used to, but because it was such a novel experience for me, it, I had a great time. It wasn't, um, I didn't see it as a negative, the change, you know, the winters or whatnot. Um, in terms of faculty, certainly, I do think several of the professors in the college of communication because the focus is so pragmatic. It's so much about practical experience in the world. That was really helpful for me to get some uh, earnest skills, not just, you know, in theory skills. I think outside of the College of Communications, um, there was quite a few professors, particularly I took a great um, course in women's studies talking about feminism and women's rights and, you know, grew very passionate about that. So I think a lot of the courses I took outside of even my discipline were really helpful. I ended up getting into Ellie Wiesel's 
course um, before he passed, wow. and, and yeah. that was phenomenal and eye-opening. So, so a lot of just really, you know, really wonderful opportunities to feed my natural curiosity and learn things outside of my course of study. And to no surprise, I think the friends I made on campus also contributed to the learning. I ended up meeting some incredible folks um, from all over the world. I mean, Jock from Hawaii, from the British Virgin Islands, and, and ended up meeting my very best friend, who to date is my best girlfriend, who is from neighborhood Franklin, Mass. And oh, so I think, you know, just also, yeah, so just also being surrounded by individuals who also had this natural curiosity and drive, but also were just incredibly kind, lovely people um, was, was an important part of my experience. You told me before we got started that you worked at the uh, top of the Charles restaurant, which uh, we don't believe exists anymore. But were there other sort of outside of the classroom um, experiences that uh, maybe helped inform your experience or even led you down the career path that you, you found yourself on? Sure. Well, I can speak to many. Um, I would say, you know, I always had jobs working through college. So the top of the Charles working at that restaurant, I worked at Sansi. Um, I worked at Hard Rock Cafe Boston. So, you know, always a very hard worker outside of the classroom. And then extracurricular BU, I was quite involved. So I ended up um, being part of the soap opera Bay State. So apparently I, I always loved performing. So that was fun to be part of Bay State. And that year actually MTV came and interviewed Bay State. So the funny story is um, my grandpa who you know is not familiar with soap operas you know was was looking at these clips that my parents were showing in pride only to see his granddaughter kissing someone on this college <laughs> soap opera <laughs> so so kind of one of those funny what am i paying for bu moments um but bay state was a great experience um you know served on the college communication student council um was involved in the greek system gamma phi beta and was involved in Best Buddies. I did quite a, quite a bit of volunteer work for Best Buddies. So, so yeah, I got very, very involved um, on campus as well. Well, and some of those, you know, the Best Buddies experience, I'm sure, I, I know that you've gone on to, um, to a career that is also focused on sort of social impact, and we'll get to that, certainly. But um, I'm curious to know, you know, knowing what you do for work now and what you've been doing over the last few years, would college cat be surprised at where you ended up a hundred percent absolutely um at the time i i knew that i was a creative soul and i loved uh, building things but if you would have told me many years ago that i would be you know, on a path to create the future of finance, I would have laughed at you. <laughs> I would have said, who are you speaking to? And so I do think, um, and I love that. I love that part of my journey. I do think it's important to share that you, you do never know where you're going to end up. And I think if you keep following what interests you and what excites you, you can and be open to that. You can follow really interesting trajectories. Um, when I look at, you know, the common threads of my career of social justice and a passion for problem solving and building things. And it makes tons of sense. Um, but because it wasn't my earliest career path, I think I, I think I would have been surprised. So with that in mind, how did you get started? You, you get your diploma, you walk across the stage, you spend a day hopefully with your family celebrating. And then, you know, I think so much of, of somebody's career path comes down to decision making. How did you, what was your decision process for what did you end up doing once you finished your degree? 
Yeah, so uh, I thought I wanted to do advertising. So I ended up landing a job as a copywriter because I loved writing and figuring out clever solutions to marketing problems. But I learned probably within the first year of that position, I didn't want my boss's boss's job. And so I knew this was not going to be my long-term career path. So then I thought, well, okay, what do I want to do? And, and truthfully, I didn't know. And so all I knew in my gut is that I really wanted to do something that was meaningful and purposeful. So I ended up joining AmeriCorps in Puerto Rico, um, very much like Peace Corps, but it's a U.S. program. And my mother's from Argentina, so I was able to use my Spanish down there to help low-income communities with literacy and homeless efforts. That was my first job <laughs> outside of communications. Um, but then after AmeriCorps, you know, I really had to think, okay, so, so if I'm not going to do advertising, then what? And I ended up um, going into marketing in New York. Um, and then from there, it's a long, wonderful roller coaster that got me to where I'm here today. Yeah. Uh, it's great to hear that you're an AmeriCorps alum. I, not that this podcast is, is sponsored by AmeriCorps, but I'm also an AmeriCorps alum myself. And what a great way for somebody who, you know, finishes up a college degree and isn't quite sure what the next step is to sort of get out and get some real experience and, and, and make a positive impact. So kudos to you for, for doing that. Um, nice, nice to know we have that in common. Um, all right, <laughs> Absolutely. So, so not to make you rush through, you know, your entire career, but can you kind of from there walk us through the different companies you've worked for and the roles that you've had and how that led you to where you are now? Sure. So as I shared, you know, after AmeriCorps, I moved to New York where many of my BU friends were and joined a, a marketing firm to see if integrated marketing was a better fit for me than advertising. And I was very lucky at 25, I was given the chance to open our West Coast office. Um, and so the firm asked me to go out to San Francisco, find the real estate, hire the employees, um, bring on new clients, the gambit. And, and that's when I was really brought alive. To be given such an entrepreneurial opportunity at such a young age um, was both terrifying and, and exciting. <laughs> well, let me, so, let me ask so you about that. I, I, I hate to interrupt yeah. you, but that's fascinating. So what, what was it about you, What the skills that you had, you obviously were, were really having some success right out of the gate. What Can you pinpoint what, what you were doing that made you be so successful at 25 that you know these the company was saying hey we want you to, to start a new office for us it's a great question um, if I had to if I had to think about it as objectively as possible I'd probably say it's um, looking at problems differently and then solving them successfully so I entered this marketing firm that was just kicking off a technology division at the height of the tech pot right at the tech boom really trying to figure things out and so I was able to not only you know quickly get up to speed and you know bring in new clients but also ended up um, adding a lot of new processes and a lot of new business development tactics just a lot of new um, opportunities for that firm where I ended up just getting promoted to promoted, promoted. So I tend to look at old problems and develop new solutions. I'd say that's, you know, if I had what I did during that time. And so that ended up <laughs> resulting in quite a bit of success and new sales and new business for that firm. And so that's part of it. And then the second piece of it, as I was getting promoted, they would put me in management roles where I got to hire more people and I got to build teams and I thrive in that environment as well. And so I think those things ended up positioning me um, for the opportunity of you are the one that should go really start our West Coast division. 
So you go out to the West Coast and start this division. I'm, I'm guessing it's super successful. How, how did you know when it was time to leave that company for another opportunity? Well, like any good story, <laughs> drama unfolded. Um, things were going beautifully out West until the dot-com bust. And for any listeners that remember that period, you know, it was a time of, of you know, feast then famine. And so I remember, you know, thinking to myself in the midst of, you know, the dot-com bust that I thought it would be unethical, frankly, to continue pouring money into this effort uh, during a time where pink slips you know, we're floating out of buildings in San Francisco. And so I phoned the CEO of the firm and just laid it out plainly. I said, you know, I really think that at this point, you know, you don't want to be pouring money out here. We want to be a profit center for you, not an expense burden. Um, and so this isn't the right time to double down on a tech-focused expansion. And he agreed. And so then the question was, well, now what do I do, right? He invited me to come back to New York and, you know, climb the ladder there. And it was really great, a great soul searching time for me because I'm in the middle of San Francisco, you know, this tumultuous time in our economy and thinking to myself, well, what next? And this is when my passion for social justice crept up again, because here I was in San Francisco, a place known for social innovation um, and equality. And I thought to myself, could this be a place where I could finally marry those, you know, that passion for business and that passion for social justice? I'm going to sit it out because I want to find out. So I ended up telling the CEO that I really wanted to explore opportunities out West because I really felt the need to, to, you know, see if I could fit those two together. And lo and behold, I did. I ended up doing a lot of informational interviews, just finding out what was happening in the social innovation space in San Francisco and landed a great job at an organization that was looking for someone like me who could speak both languages, both the nonprofit and the for-profit worlds. And from that organization, I spun out my first social enterprise. And so that ended up leading to a great opportunity. Um, I ended up going back to business school after that, knowing that I wanted to focus on social enterprise, social venture. And, and I think it was that aha moment, you know, where I, I knew that this is what I love doing. I loved building scalable businesses that create a better world. So you went to, and I know that you got your master's at Oxford, moved all the way over across the pond, I guess, uh, well, not quite <laughs> across the pond, but um, can you tell, tell me a little bit more about the decision? And, and so you went to Oxford with the, with the idea of kind of social innovation? That's correct. Yeah. At the time, there were only four colleges, four universities um, in the world <laughs> that had a social enterprise or social venture track. Um, and so, and they were all, you know, Ivy Leagues and Oxford and whatnot. So it was certainly small, <laughs> slim, slim chances, slim pickings. But it was such an exciting time to be a part of this because there was, especially in, in England, there was so many exciting developments happening um, in the social enterprise space. And that, and that really did health to a considerable degree, you know, especially, you know, learning some of the disciplines that I hadn't studied in my undergraduate degree and much getting much more comfortable with operations and finance um, and other pieces of marketing and management. And so it was a great experience at Oxford and then getting to put that overlay of social enterprise and how do you build a for-profit company that has that underlying social mission and make it scalable and make it impactful. All those things were just critical parts of that learning at Oxford. 
And so after Oxford, you launched Global Brigades, right? Is this the Global Brigades that everybody's thinking of, like Global Water Brigades, Global Medical Brigades, or is this a different organization? That is correct. You have it on the U's campus. So, um, yeah, the funny story is after, you know, I like inserting this so so the listeners on the call who are students with student debt can can feel that, you know, I, I feel your pain. You know, after I graduated business school, I had student debt and had to find a way to pay it off. And so I spoke to the career counselor at Oxford and I said, what do you think? I know I want to do my next social enterprise, but I have this tremendous student debt. And he said, look, you love problem solving and you're really good at it. Why don't you do management consulting for a few years? you know, build up a stockpile and then do your next one. And that's exactly what I did. So I ended up doing management consulting with Deloitte for several years, paid off my student debt, erstwhile worked with my uh, friend who became my co-founder for Global Brigades. Um, And that's when we really started uh, creating this idea of how do we build the student movement for good. So we launched, so I ended up leaving Deloitte um, to do Global Brigades full time. And yeah, now it's, industry leader. We are in five countries with over 300 campus chapters. It's been really a wonderful ride. And so here's where your serial entrepreneur comes out. You make the decision eventually to take on a new challenge after Global Brigades. What what led you to, to go down that path? Yeah, so we, be, you know, Global Brigades, we became very big, grew very large, and I started getting interested in in finance and the flow of capital because now we are looking at how money was flowing in and out of countries, how different communities were using money, microfinance. We spun out our microfinance programs, and so I started getting very interested in the flow of dollars, who controlled it, who didn't, and then this field of impact investing was emerging, and folks were talking about impact investing and what that could do. So I ended up um, taking a board seat, so still a leadership position but a board seat with Global Brigades because I really wanted to get more involved on the finance side of this equation of social justice. I ended up joining an impact investing firm called Ostia um, that's in the the West Coast as well as New York and and England and and had a wonderful experience learning more about impact investing, the different vehicles, uh, the different organizations that we could fund. The thesis of Ostia in particular was funding women entrepreneurs, so that was incredibly exciting. And that really started you know, I would say, uh, increasing my interest in what finance can do as an instrument for positive change. So moving forward, you know, from there, I ended up getting a wonderful opportunity to work at Charles Schwab, obviously a very large financial services company. They were looking for someone to lead a strategy group focused um, on strategic direction and predictive analytics and thinking through what would, what does the future of finance look like when you think about new market segments, when you think about fintech, when you think about uh, advisory services or working with women millennials, wonderful group of people that I worked with there. And it was really during my time at Schwab that I had that, you know, that aha moment that yes, in fact, finance can be an instrument for positive change. But at the same time, let's look outside my office window. The wealth gap in the United States is only growing bigger. And so I can either sit in my office and continue to create financial products that successfully benefit the wealthy, or I could get out there and start creating financial products that create a more inclusive society. And I think that's what I was very inspired to do. And that's why I went off and started the FinTech company, C-Note. Amazing. So, to, um, well, first, if I, I think I saw this um, term maybe 
on your LinkedIn page, but that you sort of find yourself at the, the intersection of money and meaning. And that really sort of jumped out at me. I'm curious, if we asked you to come back to campus and sit in front of every Questrom School of Business student to share some advice with them about their role in the world and the opportunities that they have to, to make change, what would you tell you know, these 18, 19, 20 year old students about their, how they could do that? Does that make sense? Absolutely. No, I think it's an excellent question. And I would remind folks that each of us has the power to make that change regardless of what they're studying. So if you're a psychology major, a literature major, um, a biotech major, whatever you are, I think there's an opportunity to create the world that you seek to live in. And I think the emphasis is on the how. So often when we think about our career path, we think about the what, right? I want to have this title, or I want to create this product, or I want to have this type of office. But we forget that the means, the how we do that is just as important as the what. And so I would argue that even just the type of manager that you are, or the ethical practices you have in your day-to-day, and then of course the types of products or services all of those things can be integrated with transparency, with uh, equitable values, with a lot of the things that we all want to live um, within if we're conscious about it, if we're intentional about it. So I would certainly share that each of us has the opportunity to create that social change. It's not just for folks that call themselves social enterprises, but social entrepreneurs or change makers. So we talked about this, I think, about some of the skills that you found helpful early in your career. So now for, you know, again, somebody who's interested in, you know, diving into the world of, uh, I think, I think also you quoted it as sort of values aligning investing, which what CNO, you know, helps people do. Um, what are, what are the skills that you found that you've needed to rely on as the CEO of a company? Um, what, for folks that want to sort of lead their own organization someday, what are, what are the skills that you think that people need to work on it or have? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, I would start with the North Star. I think that there's that great quote, you know, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. I truly believe that. So finding something you're truly passionate about, um, whether it's a problem or an issue or an industry, I think is a great place to start because then the learning curve and the hurdles and the, you know, inevitable bumps in the road won't feel as bumpy because you just are passionate about you know, what you're working on. So I think that's a great place to start. And there's always that intersection of what you're interested in and then what, what you're good at. <laughs> so making sure that whatever you're passionate about, you find that piece of it that you're actually good at or feel competent in and can build on is actually another great, um, great piece of advice that I received years ago. And yeah. so I think starting with that passion and then those, that competency is a great place. And then from there, just as a leader, I believe in things such as kindness, and being a good listener, humility, and being a strong example, right? Because I think just like a parent, right? Folks often do what you do, not what you say. And so I think modeling the type of culture that you want in your in your business, for us at CNOTE, it's a lot about transparency, direct communication, respect for individual ideas, disagreeing without being disagreeable, 
creative ideas. I mean, there's no such thing as too crazy of an idea. You know, we love when folks bring to us wacky ideas because I think you have to start there and then you dial it back, you know, to what we could actually implement or pilot. But I do think some of the most groundbreaking innovations come from those really stretch roles and stretch ideas. So those are a few of the characteristics that I've found helpful helpful in my position. And I want to talk more about your role as CEO for CNote. Um, and I'll ask you this question. I don't know if you do, if you've written your own LinkedIn profile, but your position with CNote is listed as chief bottle washer. Um, <laughs> did you write that? Okay. So what does that I mean? I did. What, what are you trying to say by, by listing your title as such? So I think entrepreneurship is, is very much romanticized in the United States and probably internationally. And I think when you start up, particularly in the first you know five to seven years, you're doing everything, right? I mean, one day you're writing, the next day you're speaking, the next day you're selling, the next day you're recruiting, the next day you're, you know, and you don't ever know really what you're going to be asked to do. You pretty much do what needs to get done to get to, right, to get to the next milestone. And so I, I share that because, again, I think that is threading in that humility, which I think is so important for, for startups and for specifically CEOs to have, is that, um, you know, the end goal is about the mission and the end goal is about creating a strong organization, not about the hubris of the CEO. And so it's just to remind all of us that, you know, to execute successfully, it's 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 dirty and it's getting in the weeds and it's often not glamorous and you do what it takes, but it's be, because you believe so strongly in the success of the organization. I, I kind of had a feeling that that was the spirit behind Chief Bottle Washer. That just, <laughs> uh, uh, the amount of work that goes in, and, and I'm glad to hear you sort of share that with folks. Um, tell me uh, a little bit about, you know, what are the specific aspects of your work that make you the most happy? What are you the most proud of? Yeah, I mean, probably one of my happiest moments in this journey with CNOTE was the day that we were, we heard, um, it was the first 10 months of us being in operations, and we had created over a thousand new jobs across the United States. So, you know, our whole thesis at CNOTE, right, is that each of us can play a role in closing the wealth gap in this country. Traditionally, we think, well, that's government's job. Why is there so much inequity racially, economically? Oh, that's foundation's job. Oh, that's nonprofit's job. But it's the wealth gap is expanding so rapidly right now. It used to be 40 times, right? Low income, um, uh, the highest income families had a median net worth of 40 times more than low income. It's now over 75 times more. So it, it's just getting bigger. And so our thesis here is, well, if we don't wait for others to solve the problem, what if each of us can play a role and not by donations, but by investing, really taking some of those dollars that we're investing and putting into use um, to close the wealth gap? And so, you know, we, we came up with this idea and we thought we're going to create those financial products that make it really easy for folks to put their money where their values are. Um, and it's going to produce results. It's going to produce results like creating jobs. It's going to produce results like more fair access to capital for women. It's going to produce results like more affordable housing for our low-income communities. You know, and like any good company, you, you come up with these ideas that, and you hope you're correct and you hope you can execute. And so when we first received those numbers that with less than a year, we were able to do what we said we were gonna do and create new jobs in the communities that need it the most, um, that was just, 
uh, just absolutely exciting. And, and uh, I was ecstatic to hear that. So that was certainly one of my happiest moments. And then I think as a team, um, just looking around, even when I go to my team meetings and seeing the just high caliber, amazing folks that have joined our team and sign up every day to do this hard work. Um, and in such a fun manner, because we have a great time together. That's also just brings me tremendous joy. Awesome. Well, I'm glad to see that uh, AmeriCorps spirit of of changing the world is still <laughs> still with you. I, I'm not I'm, I'm not trying to be funny about that. I, I, I'd love to see people who are in finance have that kind of perspective. And listening to you talk, I can't help but wonder, you know, for you in the next five to ten years, what what do you see as kind of being next for you? I I, I can't help but wonder if you've got political aspirations. <laughs> Oh, wow. So my, I, my husband probably hopes I do not. <laughs> um, you know, I think there's enough to do on the social enterprise front um, sure. without getting involved in politics at this point. But I do think there's a lot we can do from an economic perspective. And you made a great point just about that lens on finance. Um, we don't, you know, I always laugh and say, most people don't wake up in the morning thinking about their finances and what should I do today with my finances? And so, you know, we think we have a wonderful opportunity to really reframe finance and really rethink about who finance can serve and what finance does, right? That it doesn't have to just be what a lot of folks think as an area for greed. It can certainly be an area for good. So I think in the next five to 10 years, um, we have an opportunity to continue to create these open for everybody financial products um, that make it very easy to, to, to do good and do well. You know, and on one side, great, it's changing what your experience is of finance. On the flip side, it's changing these communities, right? It's really giving new opportunity to the communities that are often neglected um, by traditional finance. So I think there's a lot of good we can do. And I think that will drive not just billions of dollars into underserved communities, but will continue to create the kind of metrics we're excited about, closing the wealth gap, creating more access to capital for women and minorities, creating more funding and support for low-income communities, and um, just closing the wealth gap inevitably. Yeah. Well, I, I know you're a busy person and we're running up against our time. My last question for you is if we sort of try to put a big bow on this and, and for you to, from a 30,000 foot view of your you know, time at BU and your subsequent career, um, any final thoughts or, or wisdom or lessons learned that you, you feel like you could share with the, the BU alumni community? Absolutely. Um, I would say from an alumni community, uh, Stay, stay involved. I've been so blessed to stay close to my BU contacts. Um, and I'm sure most folks listening have a similar impression of just the high caliber of people you met during that experience. So I say, stay close to, you know, stay close and stay connected, even if you don't live anywhere near each other to your BU contacts. Um, and then the second thing I would just say is pursue your natural curiosity. You know, oftentimes we get boxed in into our careers and, and only learn the, you know, learn the continuing education or the next best thing in our current function or our current job. But pursuing whatever you're naturally curious about, even if it's far outside of what your current role is um, or what you studied, I think is wonderful because it could lead you in some really exciting new directions. Kat, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us today. I really appreciate it. It was a pleasure getting to chat with you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. 
My thanks once again to Kat Berman for joining me on Proud to Be You. It was a real pleasure to speak with her, and I can't help but be inspired by her work as an agent of positive social change. If you'd like to learn more about her current company, C-Note, visit mycnote.com. We also talked about her work founding Global Brigades, and you can learn more about that organization at globalbrigades.org. Thanks again for listening to the Proud to Be You podcast. If you like what we're doing, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review Proud to Be You wherever you download your episodes. I'm Jeff Murphy, and no matter where your path takes you, be proud to be you. The Proud to Be You podcast is produced by Boston University Alumni Relations. Our theme is from Jump and APM Music. To learn more about Proud to Be You, visit bu.edu slash alumni slash podcast.